Yo. Hey, what's up, John? So you're here first. We're just waiting for Mike. I just came here for the drinks. You just came here for the drinks? <laughs> Yo, if you're going to discuss appetite for destruction, you know you got to be drinking. <laughs> Yo, let me tell you, man, I still remember, and I, I waited, but I remember getting that album. I waited. Remember back in the days, Tower Records, had, you had Tower Records, you had Tower Book, and then you had that little Tower Record that was a few blocks away that it was called like the Agnes or whatever. The one on was it West Fourth? Yeah, it was. A, it was a little further. It was they had the one, but they little oh, like a block away. They had another small one, and that's where they did all the autographs and stuff. They had like a small. Yeah, I saw. And, I saw. I saw Marilyn Manson there. Yeah, I saw. You, you know what's funny? The day this album came out, um, also, um, fucking, um, Ozzy Osbourne had a fucking um signing the same day. Oh shit. As a, and, I, and I remember getting online. I remember, well, too, I remember I lived on 37th Street and 9th Avenue. I remember going to fucking, going to midnight sale, waiting online, and getting the fucking album. And they had to trooper back to 37th Street and 9th Avenue. Hello, That's guys. Crazy. Hey, what's up, Mike? What's I up, got Mike? Jonathan here. What's up, man? How you doing, Jonathan? I'm here, chilling like a villain. All right, cool, cool. You holding up all right, man? Nah, it sucks. I'm still fucking working. Get my ass hands to me at Lowe's. Oh, wow. You're fucking people are fucking savages. Which Lowe's are you working at? In Brooklyn? Yeah, I'm Avenue U and uh, Flatbush. Oh, I mean, okay. the, the people I work with are great. The, the company's great. The customers are fucking... Not all of them, but a good chunk yeah. of them are fucking savages. And, and things today, man. People are fucking going crazy, man. Like right Mike, now, I've, seen, I've, seen more fist, I've seen more fist fights yeah. in Lowe's than I have in the East Village with the drunks in the past two years. I believe it. I totally believe it. Wow. Holy shit, man. Yeah, it is what it is. All yeah. right, guys. So let's get to business. This is the Rock Show 70, and we are talking about the making of Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. Right. And uh, I want to thank John for coming on because I know he's... So his today. Um, I'm, I told I told my, Rob I'm just here for the drinks. Because <laughs> God knows there's plenty of that in this fucking album. Oh, you should have oh, seen Mike last night for the drinks. <laughs> oh shit! Yeah, I was in I was in the park and I you know I was there for a little while. I saw Boogie and a few people, and then I left and I ended up stopping at. A fucking deli by my house, and I had a had a party all by myself, man. There you go. <laughs> hey, but hey, but you were social distancing, so that's okay. Yes, yes I was keeping six feet away from myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think Rob has that normally when he jerks off because his cock is so huge. Oh my god! My god! <laughs> this conversation even, got weird. Jesus I haven't even started drinking yet either. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, so man. um, Mike. And John, what what you guys got for me today? All right, um, you know we're gonna talk about the making of this album. I want to give a little back history on Guns and Roses, and uh, John, just jump in whenever you feel like it. We've got some info, okay? I I, I know most of the drug stuff. That's I came here for the drinks. I know a lot of the as far as like the recording stuff goes. I'm not I'm not that learned in. I know a lot of more of the stories of the parties, the drinking, oh, and how yeah. things. How things went south fast with this fuck with this shit. Well, you know, at the at the end of the show, I want to talk a little bit about the legacy of the album and, and what the band meant to to us, you know. And you know, we'll get into all that shit. Of course. All right. So the story of Guns N' Roses actually starts in 1984. Okay? 
there was a band called Hollywood. John, what are you doing? I can hear it. <laughs> Sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll mute my mic. I'm putting ice. I told you, I'm making a drink, bro. <laughs> Dad, sounds like I'm in eyeball. I know. Sorry. Hey, so, so um, let's start. Let's start. What's up, Mike? All right. So, you know, the, the history of Guns N' Roses starts in 1984. There was a band in uh, California called Hollywood Rose. And members, Izzy Stradlin, okay, uh, he was in that band. And he was living at the time with uh, L.A. Guns member Tracy Guns. Now, L.A. Guns turned out they needed a new singer. Their singer got fired. So Izzy recommended Axl Rose, okay? Uh, he was a friend of his, and he said, yeah, he could sing. He could join your band. So it, by March of 1985, there was a lot of back and forth with this. They actually started a new band, okay? And it would feature Izzy Stradlin on rhythm guitar, Tracy Guns on lead. They had a Rob Gardner on drums and a bass player named Ole Beach, okay, yeah. on, on, uh, on bass. And Axel was singing. Now, they eventually got a new name for the band. It was going to be Guns N' Roses. Yep. And what they did is they took the name of Hollywood Rose and combined it with L.A. Guns. Yep. All right. So some other names were actually considered. Now, check this out. Did you ever hear this, John? Like any of the other names that they, they thought they were going to use? John? I think he's making a drink. Okay, let him make a drink. Yeah. One, 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 name, one name that uh, they were considering was called Heads of Amazon. And I heard one, that. Yeah, and another one was just AIDS. That name, those names are terrible. They, imagine calling your band AIDS. <laughs> I, yeah, I heard, I heard, but didn't they, they play one show like that? And they no, got mad no, fucking... no. It was all like stuff they considered, but their first gig, they were really Guns N' Roses. Now, the first show they played was on March 26, 1985, and immediately after that gig, the bass player, Beach, he was fired, and he got replaced by Duff McKagan. All right? Now, an EP was planned right away. Uh, yeah. Were pretty well received right off the bat. Uh, they were thinking of some songs. Uh, it was going to be a short album, an EP. They had, they had Don't Cry. They already had that song written. They had Think About You, Anything Goes, and then it was a cover of Elvis's Heartbreak Hotel. Yep. But there happened to be an argument between Axl Rose and Tracy Guns. And it ended up that they threw Tracy Guns out of the band. And he got replaced by Slash, who play, played formerly in Hollywood Rose with Izzy Stratton. But you and, know what? That's the best thing that could have happened to them, uh, Slash coming yeah. in. Yeah. Well, you know, Tracy Guns went on with L.A. Guns, and they were okay. Uh, they didn't last that long. But, I mean, I mean, they, actually, I think they're still around, but, you know. They're, 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 but their popularity never, never actually got anywhere as much as Guns N' Roses. I think they still play around, right, John? Yeah, they do. Actually, yeah. <laughs> that's that's really like they didn't last that long. They they they, let, they they came they come and go, but they they're not you know. You know what it is? Those guys are in the West Coast more, so that's why we don't see them that much. Yeah, yeah. Over and the years, not, and they're not as talented. Let's be let's be honest. And not that they're not talented. They're not as talented as Guns N' Roses. They, just, I mean, just... they, they had that one that one album with that song, Ballad of Jane, that was okay. You know, they, they one hit wonders. Yeah, All right, that's you the know. most. That's the most, really. Yeah. Um, 
also, right after he got kicked out of the band, they would replace the drummer Gardner with Stephen Adler, who was also in Hollywood Rose. So basically, Guns N' Roses is Hollywood Rose with Duff McKagan. Yeah. That's really what it is. Now, here's my thing. How fucked up must you be as a human when Steven Adler is the one replacing you? You know, I, I don't Adler's life situation was like when he joined the band. But by the time he left the band, he was a wreck. Jesus Christmas. He was, I mean, yeah, the amount of dope he was doing was like off the hook. He was lumped <laughs> up. <laughs> lumped up, bro. He, you, the, the of, and I watched this on one of the shows. He could tranquilize a fucking small horse Probably. with the shit he was doing. I know, and that's why they wow. had to throw him out because he, he was even so fucked up for them, you know? <laughs> that says something. Yeah, yeah. Now, ironically, Slash had also played in the band called Road Stuff McKagan. So these guys all knew each other, all right? Now, the classic GNR lineup was set, and they played their first gig June 6, 1985 with that lineup. After about nine months of um, excessive West Coast touring, and they were playing the Hollywood clubs like the Troubadour and the Roxy all the time. Yeah, they played everything. Yeah, they got signed to Geffen Records pretty easily. Uh, That was in March of 1986. They immediately got a $75,000 advance. Actually, what happened was... They actually released an EP also before, so people wouldn't forget about them. Well, they were going to put the EP out right away. That was that was part of the deal. Yeah. But what they turned down was interesting because Chrysalis Records offered them twice as much as an advance, but they would have had to change their sound and their image. And they were like, fuck that. So Geffen, <laughs> Geffen had, you know, given them as much, you know, uh, creative artistic freedom as they wanted, so they ended up going with them for that reason. It really wasn't about. But money. but think about how much seventy five thousand. I mean, seventy five thousand dollars is a lot of money now. Yeah. As I was saying, imagine it thirty years ago. Yeah. Like do the inflation numbers. That that was probably like what got, a couple of million it's now. Got to be probably at least a half a million. I would say right now. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So and they had to split it five ways. So maybe it was like a hundred grand each now. If you did it now, you know. But they actually turned down that offer because of the artistic freedom that Geffen offered them. And it also had to do with the releasing of the EP. Now, at the end of 86, they did release the fourth song EP called Live Like a Suicide. Yep. And on that, they covered Rose Tattoo's Nice Boys and Aerosmith's Mama Kin. And they had two originals, a song called Reckless Life and a song called Move to the City. Um, the album is not really a live album. I don't know if you know that. Okay. No, it was it was recorded. It was faked. Yeah. What they did is they it was actually demos that they, you know, cleaned up a little bit and they released it and crowd noises in. Okay. And we we've talked about that before, Rob, you know, like like Kiss Alive Two and all that. Yeah. You know, like that, that that happens a lot more than you think. Um the album uh was released on the Uzi and that was a that kind of Guns N' Roses was was watching over this label. It was like bands that they liked would end up on Uzi Suicide. Um, one band that comes to mind is Hanoi Rocks. Now, yeah, Hanoi, Hanoi Rocks. Rocks was a huge influence on Guns N' Roses, but their albums were very hard to find. They were a, a band from Finland. Everything was an import except their last album, which was the Two Steps from the Move that was released here, but then 
Vince Neil killed their drummer in that accident. So, you know, that was the end of Hanoi Rocks. But yeah. it's hard to find their albums. And in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, Uzi Suicide under Geffen re-released them in the United States for the first time. So that was cool that they did that. Um, yeah. That one EP, though, Live Like a Suicide, they only made 10,000 vinyl copies of it. So it's very rare if you have it. Um, wow. Do you have it, John, or no? No. I, I have, but I do have Appetite for Destruction on vinyl. <laughs> do you have it with the original cover? Yes. Mm. The one with the robot, the... the robot raping the girl? Yeah, like the monster. No, no. Well, no, no, I have, no, I have, I have, I have the one with the fucking the thing jumping over the fence. The, um, yeah, that's yeah. what he means because it was based on, it was based on a painting that kind of looked like that, but they, they they changed it, like with the creature with all the knives in its mouth jumping over. So, yeah, there was only, that was weird. <laughs> it is weird. It is weird. And uh, you know, I, I don't remember, and I couldn't find in my research, but I could have sworn that Slash had something to do with that artwork. Does that ring a bell with you, John? Really? I, I know. Um, he, I know he was doing a lot of art stuff back then. He knows. I don't he know knows if he draws. He... He's, he's autistic like that. Yeah. I, I could have sworn that it was something uh... that he modified on the original thing to make it look like that, but I never could find anything when I was researching the show. So I don't know. Something I wow. remember hearing like years ago. <laughs> Painting for Destruction was by artist Robin Will- Robert Williams. Yeah. The fact that the number of music stores refused to stock it, um, blah, 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 blah. No, it's it not saying no, that Slash I, did it. I, I saw weird. that same thing, and it, it didn't say, but I, I remember an interview. Maybe it was on MTV. I don't remember where, but I can remember him talking about it and them saying that he, he was involved in the design of it. So I'll just leave it at that. I'm not sure, but I think he may have. Um, in early of 87... They began the process of like pre-producing the debut album, and what they did is Geffen brought in a guy named Spencer Proffer, and he had done Quiet Riot's Metal Health album, okay, as well as a few others through the '80s. And what they did is they went into the studio and they recorded a few songs with him just to see if he could work with the band. And they had done like early versions of Sweet Child of Mine. Night Train, and several others. Um, they also did some demos with the band Nazareth's guitarist. The guy's name is Manny Charton. He was, he was brought in as a possible person to produce. Um, and, and interesting enough, they also brought in Paul Stanley from Kiss. Uh, they were considering him. But him and Steven Adler didn't hit it off because apparently... Stanley wanted to change his drum kit around in other ways to get a different sound. Adler didn't like that. So they, they didn't work it's good together. He was rejected. They also wow. brought in um, a guy named Mutt Lang, okay, who was a very well-accomplished producer. He worked with everybody from ACDC to the Cars. Okay? But Geffen thought he was too expensive. So he was ruled out. So finally, what they did, they, they found a guy named Mike Klink. Okay, and Mike Klink was well accomplished, but not well known. Okay, Uh, he had worked mostly with that band Triumph. Okay, and he was brought in and he, you know, came at a good price and he got along well with the band. So it appeared that, you know, he would be the good fit. Now, at the end of January in 87, the band entered Daryl Dragon's uh, Rumble Recorder Studio 
to start doing basic tracks. Now, do you know who Daryl Dragon is, guys? Who? I do not. Okay, Daryl Dragon Studio. Daryl Dragon is the captain of Captain and Peniel. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Yeah, so, you know, if you think about it, Guns N' Roses recorded their album in the captain's recording studio. <laughs> That's funny, man. Yeah, you wouldn't even thought there'd be a connection with them, right? Nah, never, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they did these uh, these early uh, versions of these songs. They, you know, once they started doing the basic tracks, they did that for about two weeks. And then they had about another month of overdubs. Drum tracks were done in about six days. It didn't take long for Adler to do them. Uh, Axl Rose's vocals, on the other hand, that held back the, the recording. That was spot. a pain in the ass because yeah. he was doing it one line at a time. Exactly. He would he would re- want to do his lines one at a time, stop, do the next line, stop. And it just took like days and days and days to go through the album. And the other band members just left the studio. They're like, fuck it. We're not even sticking around for this. Um, Mike Klink was actually working his ass off. He was working like 18-hour days to put together all the best takes that he had for the album. Uh, the one problem that they had when they were doing the, uh, the original basic tracks was Slash wasn't happy with his sound, okay, of his, of his leads. And what's interesting is you'd think that going into recording your first album, you'd know what your sound was going to be as a lead guitarist, but he didn't, okay? Uh what he did was he, he eventually settled in on a, Le- on a Gibson Les Paul, okay? And it was plugged into a specific Marshall amp that he liked. But I find that funny because you would think that he would have had that down going into it, that he wouldn't have had to experiment with different guitars. And I kind of wonder how that went down. You know, what was the me- mentality behind that? What was he doing before that with the live shows? He wasn't playing I, that Les Paul, I guess. Maybe I mean, not. I, and also, I, he probably maybe, wanted maybe, to get that sound because that sound, when that sound came out, it was a sound that you never heard a guitar do. It was like fucking very loud, very like, yeah, shit, this is great. Yeah, maybe he couldn't afford it. That, that could <laughs> be. No, it definitely. Yeah, I mean, money was definitely an issue early on. I'm sure. I mean, I mean, the, the, the cost of making the album itself was what? I think four hundred thousand or three hundred. Yeah, three hundred something. Yeah, yeah, three hundred seventy. Again, back then, ma- making the album for that much now is is I don't want to say a lot, but I mean that's that's a good chunk of change. Imagine yeah. back in the eighties, <laughs> that's oh, yeah. insane. You know, and Geffen was a small label then. I mean, they were big, but not that big. Okay. Yeah. And and you know they actually threw all their weight behind Guns and Roses. All right, and they took a chance and they they gambled and they they won big time. They won huge time. Yeah, yeah. Now, I just find it hard to believe that he didn't have that sound figured out, that he had to realize I'd need a Les Paul. But like you say, maybe he never played one before. Maybe I mean, Les, Paul, Les, Paul, Les Pauls to this day are not cheap. They're not no, cheap guitars at all. No, they're not. Not at all. Okay, he plays. So if, 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 if you're, I mean, you're talking about guys who are living off of groupies for how long? So they, <laughs> they, you know, they might not be able to afford, you know, a Les Paul fucking one. So now, I mean, I just, yeah. once the studio says, hey, you have camouflage. What do you want, motherfucker? I want less. <laughs> I wonder if he was playing like a Fender or something before that, or you know what kind of instrument he was. Maybe he was definitely out. playing something very different. Because then when he heard that sound, like he really fucking took the yeah. sound and made it his own. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Now, like you said, Rob, the whole album was made for three hundred seventy thousand, and all the final overdubs were done 
at Media Sound Studios, and then the final masterings were done at Sterling Sounds here in the city. Uh, Hang on one second. So Slash's first electric guitar was a copy of Gibson's Explorer, given to him by his grandmother. It wasn't. There you a, go. Yeah, it wasn't a Les Paul though. No. Hmm. No, it wasn't. And it's saying here he tried all a few instruments before adopting his, his, his definite Les Paul guitars when he could finally afford one. There you go. There you go. No. You can finally afford one. There was a. <laughs> Maybe there was one in the studio that he was like, "Hey, let me try this." I let, let me see what it's. I mean, if you, if you play guitar, every guitarist you know wants to play Les Paul, and I love them. I don't think I've ever played one because I can't see spending fifteen hundred dollars for a fucking guitar. Well, I've, I just, got, it's I've got a couple of them. I've got a couple of them. So one day I'll show you what I got. Oof. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about it if you want to play one. Yeah, um, man. Yeah, definitely. Um, now the writing process for the album was kind of varied on the tracks, different tracks were written by different band members. Sometimes the way they did it is they would re- like write something along and then present it to the band. So, for example, like the song It's So Easy, that was written by Duff McKagan. And Think About You was written by Izzy Stradlin. But Rocket Queen was written by Slash, McKagan, and Adler while they were still in the, in the, the, uh, the band Road Crew. And it was kind of like an incomplete song when it was like presented to the band. So they all finished it and wrote it together. Um, Anything Goes was written by the Hollywood Rose Band. Okay. And then was kind of rewritten by GNR. There's an album called uh, The Roots of Guns N' Roses. And it's like different bands that influenced them and bands like covers of stuff they did, the originals. And you can hear the, the Hollywood Rose version on there of that song. It's a little bit different. Um, most of their songs were written about their life experiences and people they know. Like Welcome to the Jungle is about a guy Axel met in New York City after arriving there from Indiana in 1980. Uh, Mr. Brownstone's about heroin addiction. We know that. Oh, okay. yeah. And that's something the band you know knew about firsthand. Okay. Um, out to Get Me is kind of about Axl Rose's constant like trouble with the law in Indiana when he was a teenager. Um, you know, it's it's I always liked the simplicity of their lyrics. They were just kind of like everyday shit, like just people that you meet, women, men, whatever, but, uh, you know, crazy people. And these guys were like on the street practically. You know, I mean, when they started, these guys were like, they didn't really have much. You know, Axel nah. Rose came out of Indiana like he ran away, right? Didn't he, like, leave his family? He, yeah, he, yeah got right. the, he got the hell out. Well, he came from, like, a Southern Baptist background, and it just wasn't working for him. So he, he left Indiana. I think he first went to New York, and then from there he went to L.A. And uh, I can't imagine – what his story was here though in 1980 that had to be crazy you know just showing up like that you know um yeah. john when did you first hear guns of roses when it when it came when the album came out um no okay. so the album was out uh i want to say like six months my brother actually He's the one who got the vinyl album, which is why I have it here because I think he left it here. Uh-huh. Um, and he, we, we listened to it. Uh, I was still into the scaringly enough um, Billy Joel fucking phase uh-huh. of learning. I mean, I, I ain't gonna lie. That's what got me his music originally was Billy Joel. That's awful. Uh, That's awful. Uh, you know what? Leave me alone. I was fucking. 
<laughs> you old cocksuckers, I was only like 10 years old. So, you know what? Let me I was 10 oh. once and I still hated Billy Joel. <laughs> but I like the harmonics of it. I like, I like the fact that he was telling stories. Like, all right, whatever. I'm fucking and then, <laughs> No, I know. And then he gave me, he gave me, so I started hearing, you know, Appetite for Destruction. And then my cousin Paige visited from the West Coast. Yeah. And she showed me skinheads and punks and, you know, the Mohawks. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck is this? Right. I was scared shitless. And then she used to introduce me to the Sex Pistols. And that's when I was like, oh. Right. So there's other stuff that tells stories that isn't just doo-wop shit. And yeah. that's when I started saying, oh, can I hear it? My brother my brother was like, no, fuck you, get your own. <laughs> so so I, And there was no internet back then, so I had to find my own way of listening to it. So I actually had gotten, I didn't get the vinyl, I got the cassette tape. Sure. And, it, and it fucked me up how there was no A or B. It was G and R. And I didn't understand yeah. that for the longest time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and actually, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but I want to get back to the artwork a little bit here. All right, of course. So we can totally get to the bottom of it. Now, the, art, the original cover art was done by Robert Williams, okay, with a painting based on, on his painting. And the, the painting was actually called Appetite for Destruction. And it depicted a robot rapist about to be punished by a large metal avenging type creature so that's kind of what you see okay uh several music retailers wouldn't wouldn't carry the album with that cover nah well because the boobs were out that, that was the biggest thing that i was uh, it I was also was. like violent looking you know yeah with the, with the mouth full of knives coming down you know and and geffen had a kind of compromise with this and they ended up putting that picture inside the album and then get a new cover design, which was the one we know with the with the Celtic style cross. Now that was designed by an artist named Billy White Jr. and it was originally supposed to be a tattoo. Okay, and I think Axel has that tattooed on his arm, doesn't he? Um, I think he yeah, I think so. I think, he's, I think he has it on his forearm. Um, so eventually he would get tattooed, but um, the Celtic cross was also kind of like a tribute to the Irish band Thin Lizzy. Yeah. Okay. And because Axel was a big Thin Lizzy fan. And Rob, we're going to do a show on Thin Lizzy over the summer. All right. Yep. Definitely. Um, now, on vinyl records and, and cassette copies, the A side was called G, like you said, and the B side was called R. All right. And. I, I thought I didn't know I I knew why they did that for Guns N' Roses, but I didn't know that they actually put specific songs on each side. And I don't know if I even agree with it because they said that the songs about drugs and hard life was on the G side, and songs about love or sex related stuff was on the R side. But what's Rocket Queen then? Yeah, see, I, see my, my thing with that also was back in the day, I mean, nowadays we don't do that anymore to my knowledge, but albums had a flow. There was a start right. of the album, there was, a, there was an A side and a B side. The B side was the songs that weren't as good, but they were still good, but you put on the B side. But the, the album had a flow to it. You hear it from A to B yeah, and knew it went somewhere. So to say that we just put these songs on one side to because they, they reference these things, I wasn't too keen on that idea either. Well, I mean, it. Just the example of Rocket Queen. What's Rocket Queen about? I always took it as like a chick shooting dope constantly. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so there you go. The hard drugs thing was the last song on side two, the R side. So that doesn't match 
what it says, unless because it's about a girl. I think it's because of a girl, because the second side was pretty much about girl, like My Michelle, My Sweet Michelle. Child Mom. It was all about women and like stuff like that. Because if you if you look at the album, they put six songs and six songs on each side, right? Right. And it's, it got a great flow because the first song is like the welcome. Welcome to Guns N' Roses. This is who the fuck we are. Right. And that song is so fucking high pitched, so fast and so loud that you're like, what the fuck? And then <laughs> the rest of the album goes into like this fucking weird kind of motion. And then you end with a fucking girl shooting up heroin. But it was a girl. But because it was about a girl, so it made the art side. And you know, you, you never you mind the drug part. That when they did this album, they still they got songs that they put in uh um uh um the He's last the, 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 the um loser loser illusion I like to call it. <laughs> so that loser. was a shit album. Loser illusion. Which one? One or two? You fuck. Both both They're of them both. were terrible. <laughs> loser illusion. Yeah, lose, 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 loser illusion. illusion one and two. So they wanted to they wanted to put on this album. They wanted to put uh, "Please Don't Cry." They wanted to put also "November Rain." You will be mine. They all these songs they already had, and yeah, you see how long it took them to take out because they didn't take another album like a real album, and, and then they took out a double album, and they were scumbag and tried to charge people twice. Yeah, that was a bad deal. I that turned me. I was getting turned off from them already by that point, but when they did that, that kind of I don't think I listened to them for years. Yeah. Now, do you think about, now? And I hate to jump the, the bandwagon of the first album, but do you think that was more them or the um, the the company, the fucking record company, saying "fuck you, we need our money back, let's go, stop putting albums out." Uh, you oh, mean, you mean it was Geffen's idea to do the double charging kind of like that? Meaning, <laughs> yeah, I mean, because if, if you got to figure, so I mean, if you look in, in the history of bands, especially back in that day, they put an album out. If it was a hit, they had to put another album out within a year or two tops. So well, if you take three, four years off, like, fuck you, you owe us an album. Get it out there now. Yeah, Guns N' Roses were real because they took out, like, a, they, they did that album, right? That album was, you know what? That album was on the charts for a long time. Yeah, like 147 weeks? Yeah, that album, dude, that album was, like, one of the best-selling albums. It did fucking 30 million copies, Yeah, right? Then but what, but what fucking, did it debut as, though? What did it debut as? It, 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 it debuted at 182. Yeah, yep. 182. Top 200. And it didn't move for a long time until they started getting some video airplay on MTV with Welcome to the Jungle. And, and, uh, dude, it took him a year. It, it took him a year from the day that oh, they released right. the album. And then a number year one. later, they were on the fucking, they were number one for four weeks in a row. You know what I remember at that time is they were they were touring like crazy, and I was starting to hear about them here. Okay, like the somebody played. It was before it was before the album came out. Okay, I had heard of them. They had done some shit on the West Coast, and somebody that I knew came from California back and said about this band, and they were telling me about it. And they had a cassette of like a live thing. I think it was a show from the whiskey. And he had like one song from the show recorded on the tape and some other shit. But the one song he had was Mr. Brown song. And that was the first song I ever heard from them. It, it, was, it wasn't even released yet. And I was like, that's a cool fucking song. And, you know, it was like off an off the board recording on a cassette. So it was good quality that I was listening to it. Yeah. And uh, then they released the album. 
Um, and they were still touring like crazy. And I remember they played, I, I was at the show, they played CBGB's the, uh, in 1988. They played the, uh, what used to be called the gallery. Okay. And it was like a Sunday, I think, um, acoustic show. All right. And I went to this with uh, two other people and it was packed and I got in and, you know, they did, it was like listening to, uh, it was like listening to the lies album. Okay. They did like everything acoustically and, uh, they just did like, except, uh, welcome to the jungle was like partially electric, like slash played a little something through the amp. And, uh, afterwards they were like talking to people. And I got to talk to Izzy, who was like very cool. And I just said a couple things to Slash, but Axel, he wouldn't talk to nobody. Nobody. He was just an asshole. And what are you gonna do? Okay. You know what's funny? I was there where he got beat up by Tommy Hilfiger. Oh god. Oh, I remember that. Where was that? Because he was it was it was in this place on 14th Street. It was like this after I was yeah. and everybody's there. Yep. And some shit went down. No, <laughs> it was fucking wasn't hysterical. It, wasn't man. it about a chick or something? It was like Tommy's wife. He was yeah. banging Tommy's yeah. wife. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, was it Tommy's wife? Okay, okay. Yeah, it was I a fucking. That. It was a fucking. It was crazy. And you want to hear something? So Guns N' Roses, I got the album at a midnight sale. Because Ozzy Osbourne released an album also. He had a midnight signing at Tower Records, but it was the little Tower Records. Because back then, Tower Records. Had the whole block there. Had, no, had three, they had three stores. Yeah. They, had the, they had the store. They had the bookstore. Yep. They had the record store. And then they had like a little store where they did autographs yep. and stuff yep. like that. Yep, on Lafayette, on the corner. So, so, I went, so I went there, and I got, I got there early. I was there like at 9 o'clock, and I um, waited, and... um. I was gonna buy this album. I wind up buying up. I wind up buying the um cassette of Guns N' Roses and the vinyl. And I think for me it was like probably like thirty bucks everything together. And I ran out of money. I had to walk all the way from fucking um from um from from Lafayette to Hell's Kitchen, and it was a walk from oh, hell. Yeah. I was gonna say you didn't run anyway. You walked. You ain't running. Come on. <laughs> no walk. We walked. like we we walked, man. It was a brisk I still got, and then you know, you know what's funny? So you know who loved NW, who loved Guns N' Roses, NWA, yeah. to the point they named a song uh, "Appetite for Destruction." And there was one point that NWA and Guns N' Roses were supposed to tour together. together. Yeah. Imagine that shit would have happened. That would amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but right off the bat, okay, right off the bat, as soon as that album got big, maybe not even number one. Let's say six months into it. You, I just got an impression that you started hearing these stories about Axel. I'm like, this band isn't going to last. You know, like all these fucking stories of his ego and, and you know. The, it's, the, it's the LVS, man. Lead, lead vocalist syndrome. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Oh, yeah. He was terrible, yeah, man. And, but what, what, made, what killed it for me, too, is when Izzy left. And because he was my favorite. I thought he was cool. He was like a Keith Richards type. Uh, a little bit like Andy McCoy in Hanoi Rocks. And I, I you know, I thought that he was a, like a quiet, like a quiet Beatle. You know what I mean? He's just very cool in the background, you know, and that's that's what I liked about him. When he left the band, I said, wow, this guy's like, you know, he founded the band practically. OK, and he's leaving. What's going on in that band? You know, it's it's not good. You know, you know what? The egos, the shit got crazy. You can't work with that. Dude, He's a fucking maniac. 
Dude, let me tell you, I went to that fucking uh, Giant Stadium concert with Metallica and fucking Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Oh, we stormed, we stormed off. And fucking Metallica came out, started fucking rocking the house. People go, this this guy came in three songs in, he fucking pulled the plugs, get the fuck off the stage, yeah. and the next thing that happened, I probably stole like six, seven beers because shit hit the fan. Oh man, did you really? Wow. Oh, there were people leaving the beers full. People were just fighting and throwing. And they were they almost destroyed Giant Stadium that day. There was a full blown riot. Isn't wow. that also when when what's his face where he he burnt his fucking arm up? Uh, no, that was in another one. The the guy lead singer Metallica. <laughs> oh, Dave yeah. But, yeah, oh, no, that, 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 that was, was a Devin Devin show where he stormed off stage. <laughs> he he stormed off. No, he did it like a week later. He did it in Los Angeles. Stormed off the stage. This guy and this guy from Metallica got burned up. But this motherfucker, Axel Rose, somebody threw like a fucking lighter and hit him right in the dick, man. Oh, oh man, Jesus. and he fucking laughed. He used to, he used to <laughs> jump in the audience too and attack people. No, but you know what? For the people camera. Were... Yeah, I saw, that, I saw that video. You... Right. The camera. Right. Guys, you know what's actually happened? People wondered when Guns N' Roses came out, people were still screaming for Metallica because they fucking, they, they outdid Guns N' Roses. Yeah. They came out there. They And people were like, hey, bring back Metallica. You guys suck. Yeah. It was like, holy shit. Well, I wouldn't say they sucked, but let's be honest. Metallica back in the day, they put on a fucking show oh, yeah. of shows. Oh, yeah. They were, I mean... They, they they were kissed to the tenth degree. They didn't have the, the makeup, but or the fireworks. I but saw they had their pyros, but they were fucking amazing. I saw Metallica on the Master of Puppets tour. All right, and it was they were opening for Ozzy, and it was just fucking incredible. Burton was still in the band. It was right before he died, uh, and I saw them on the uh, and Justice for All tour uh, at Nassau Coliseum. I think it was, yeah. I see Metallica live a bunch of times. You know who was the opening band for that show? Also, Faith No More. Yeah. Yep. They were big. I thought they saw. No, they saw. Really? I never liked them. I, but I know people that <laughs> see. I, I guess I'm, I guess in the odd man out, I I absolutely love Mike Patton. I yeah. think it's batshit crazy. I seen them fucking five or six times. Like I think the, they're amazing. You like the Mr. Bungle stuff and all that too? Bungle is okay, but see, I, I'm again, I'm, I'm I'm a kind of a purist. If if, if you're playing shit that makes no sense, just is noises. It does nothing for me. You have to have a format to your music. Right. So Bungle gets a little too a little bit too much. Uh, they actually just played recently Bungle. Uh, I want to say about six months ago uh, in right. Brooklyn, and tickets were like four hundred dollars. It was fucking. Yeah, insane. a friend a friend of mine went. I don't think he paid that much though. I don't recall. He probably he paid, probably got them fucking legit early. Actually. Yeah, I think he got them early. Um, let's just talk a little bit more about the album here. Get back to it for a second. Now, originally. The album cover wasn't even going to be that appetite for destruction. What Axel had in mind was he was thinking of the the space shuttle Challenger exploding as to be the wow. as to be the album cover. And uh, Geffen Records said, "Hell no." <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's too tacky. Yeah, so no, he like, can't do that. Know, it was just you know, yeah, it was hurtful, really, because pretty much to put that on there. Um, the album, like we said, it was released July 21st, 1987. It got very little interest from the radio at the beginning. All right. And the American press wasn't really interested in them at all. The only people playing them at all in the beginning was in California, like regionally. All right. But they were also up against some major competition. At the- yeah. Aerosmith. Yeah. You had Aerosmith's permanent. Def Leppard. Def Leppard's hysteria. 
and also U2 was all over the place back then. Yeah. Okay. Now, August 6th, 80, in 1987, they were at 182 in the Billboard charts. A year later, they would be at number one. But it, it, it was the release of Welcome to the Jungle, Paradise City, and Sweet Child of Mine that kind of like slowly percolated them to number one. Welcome to the Jungle didn't do it. It didn't get the album to number one. The song did well on the singles charts, but it didn't get the album to number one. But it was a combination of like those three songs, Jungle, Paradise City, and Sweet Child of Mine, that would get them to number one one year later, and they would stay there for four weeks. You know what was that that video for Paradise City was such an iconic video yeah. with a whole like that was a great MTV and they did a lot of press. But you know what the thing is? So when this album actually came out and you know what? It got panned by the critics. Yeah, the, uh, a lot of people thought that they were kind of like derivative of Aerosmith, derivative of Hanoi Rocks, uh ripping those bands off. I didn't think that nah but it, but it also goes to show you how important or how influential mtv was back in that day well they could make or break you yeah by, and, that, and, that's, and it's sad to say that but it, by 88 if you were being played on mtv your album was selling but plain and simple okay maybe not number one but you were even even shows that they had late at night like you know the alternative Nation, oh, 120 minutes to Old Nation, yeah, yeah like, man. Oh yeah, that you was were, great. If you, were, if you were a new, if you were a band that was underground, and you got on that show, you got bumped up in the charts. Oh, of course, uh, yeah, yeah like the, indeed. like the Meat Puppets, like yeah, a lot yeah. of those bands got their stardom there. One band I could think of off the top of my head that MTV made like that that was alternative was Soul Asylum. Oh yeah, yep. all right, Soul Asylum. Nobody, I knew who they who they were. I'd actually seen them a couple of times. They were okay, and then they had that song "Runaway Train." Yeah, and, I saw them live. They suck. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I I saw them early on. They were better. I know they sucked later. Once they, well, that was the thing. You know, they had that hit that they, they didn't know what kind of sound to have anymore. Yeah. Well, that's that, that, that's Matt Pinfield. Matt Pinfield was huge with that MTV yeah. bringing right. the, the unknown bands in and and promoting them. Which is great, but that's also more towards the 90s, and we're still back in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, this is still like 80, 88. Yeah. yeah. You know, you yeah, had, but... uh, I don't even think you had, did you have Headbangers Ball in 88? I'm not sure if that was. No, I'll, I'll find out right now what year that was. Hang on. I yeah. think that's that was the beginning of Headbangers Ball. I think that was Maybe. one of the things. I think Headbangers Ball started, but that way it got more popular. I think it was 1987. April 18th, 1987 is when it debuted. Okay. Yeah, that's so when it got pretty, popular. Right when, that, right when that album got released, that's when Headbangers was, was on. And, yeah. and, you know, but speaking of Headbangers, it's like Slash is on record saying that he never expected that album to sell the way it did at all. They never were looking for that number one. They wanted to be on a level of, like, Motorhead. Okay, where just consistently sell, cons- consistently tour, make your money from touring. They thought they were going to be that kind of band, okay? But they got so big, even though it's, I don't want to say fast, it took a year. But in that time, it was like a slow burn, you know? It was building up, building up, building up. Then they got a number one. But after that, they went off the rails. Dude, but let me tell you, this was the biggest, this is the best-setting debut album of all time. Still, it still is. Right? Uh, Yeah. And then... It's number 11 at the best-setting album of all time. Number 11 at the chart at the best-setting album of all time. Right. And then 
it sold 30 million copies. This guy said in one career it sold 30 million copies. These guys did it in one album. One album. Yep. But and again, you know, that, they, they shot themselves in the foot, I always felt, by not releasing anything else sooner. Okay. Yeah. Because they, they took put, a long time. They, they took too long. They put out lies like a year later, a year and a half later. But lies was all old material. They were just re-releasing the EP, you know, with a couple of other songs, like One in the Million and stuff like that. You know and, what the problem was? I think it was Axel. Axel was yeah. always the problem. He wanted to take out a perfect album. He was well, he wa- well, I don't think he wanted a yeah. perfect album. I think he wanted complete control. I think it was, again, the, the, the lead singer vocal syndrome where, you know, he, his mentality is, I am this band and fuck you and, and what I say goes and that's oh, it. The rest, of, the rest of you guys are my back. Exactly. I'm going he yeah, is I'm Gladys Knight and y'all are the pimps. And like, no, motherfucker, that ain't the case. Dude, you want to hear something crazy about this album? What's that? In, 2000, in 2008, September 2008, it became 18-time platinum. That was 2008. They say now it's like over 30. It probably is, but I mean, 2008, think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... You know, Use Your Illusion would have been, to me, one album that probably wasn't that good. But instead, it was two albums that was just crap. Yeah. You know, that's how I see it. I, you I, know what? I, if they would have put the best song of each of those albums, they probably would have had a very good album. But they put one or two songs in separate albums, they sucked. You know what, too, is, is, is Axel was doing a lot of stupid shit with his vocals. Okay, that I hated on Use Your Illusion. Um, what's the, is, is it Don't Cry, the one at the end where he stretches his vocals out for like fucking 10 minutes? Um, yes. What, what's the song yeah. that ends like that? I, I think it's yeah. Don't Cry. And Between I, that and November Rain, they were... Oh, I just thought it funny how y'all haven't even mentioned the spaghetti experience. <laughs> well, I was about to. No, no. I that, just, that's a, that's no, a great I album. <laughs> what I was going to say... No, what I was going to say is they redeemed themselves for me slightly when when that when the spaghetti incident came out because you know I mean even though it was an album of covers it was good covers good songs to pick fucking I love Dead, that fucking album Dead Boys T Rex you know a bunch of others and I lo- I fucking loved it I I still listen to that album once in a while I think that's as, you know one of their best you know yeah I love that album that's crazy that's a great album but the problem is. They got fucking smashed with all this other shit that, holy crap, man. They could have. Well, that album came out, nobody gave a fuck. It just, yeah. You know, but they, you know, what I thought was cool about that too was it showed their different, the different things that they were listening to, their influences. Like Duff McKagan is, is like the resident punk rocker of Guns N' Roses. Right? He knows all about, you know, hardcore bands. He was the guy wearing like the TSOL shirts on stage. And the Ramones and stuff, Slash like the Ramones, you know, and and uh, like that. And then they were also doing T Rex songs. I mean, that that was cool. But the Ramones, the Ramones were very high on Guns N' Roses. Well, because Guns N' Roses was high on them, you know. So they they were they were kind of like returning the favor. They would say in interviews that they listened to Guns N' Roses a lot. I don't know if that was really true or not. Might have been, but if you look at those bands that were out in. 87, 88, 89. You know, hair metal was like at the end there. They got lumped in with the hair metal bands, but I don't really consider them a hair metal band. Do you, no, John? not at all. 
Hammer metal to me is like they poison. And I mean, even Def Leppard, some some of their stuff is hammer metal. I think some's not, but but I mean, Marty Koo was hammer metal and poison and rad and super yeah, rad. That's I mean, all those guys metal. absolutely. My, my, the biggest thing with hammer metal me is 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 poison. I like, and don't get me wrong, I do like <laughs> yeah. a good poison song, but it's 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 poppy. It's it's pop metal bullshit. It, it, it is, and the first album is listenable by Poison. You know what, that album, the that. first time, even Motley Crue, Girls, 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 I love that album. Yeah, by then I kind of was sick of them. I liked the earliest shit, Shout at the Devil and stuff like that. I liked. That was yeah. good, too, but I did like the Girl, Girls, Girl. They had some yeah. songs that I was like, all right, this is fucking great. Yeah, no, and, and they put on a, a pretty good live show, too. Um, yeah, I mean... They're not really hair metal. They kind of get lumped in with that. I I, I kind of keep them separate from that in my head. I don't like to think of them in the same thing as poison. Not at all. But I think uh, I think hair metal. I think you yeah. know, and I hate to say this, but you know, fucking like poison and um fucking uh Van Halen, like the spandex wearing, high teeth hair, makeup, dancing, smiling kind of. And Guns N' Roses yeah. to me were more Metallica. They're more you know just drinking whiskey, fucking chicks, and 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 just not giving a shit. Van Halen, I ne- I don't think too much as the hair bands, but I know what you're saying because they kind of they started earlier. They started in what seventy seven. Yeah, but see, but seeing okay. David on stage doing the spin yeah. kicks and yeah, man, I'm here, yeah, baby. Yeah, Let's go. <laughs> yeah, especially when he had his solo album. Yeah. <laughs> so that to me, that that's one me. thing I can tell well, you. I'm- one thing I can tell you, if you heard Guns N' Roses, they were loud. They were just yep, fucking yeah. loud. Oh yeah, they were. Holy shit! Do you do you remember when they played the Ritz, John? I do not actually. Okay, they played the Ritz. I know it was like what two. I know it was like two in the morning, right? They they, he was super fucking late as always. Um, (laughs) it wasn't that late. They, you know what? Because I saw it on HBO, and it. I don't think it was live. I think it was like from the day before or something. You know what I mean? Like they played it the next day. So maybe they did go on at two in the morning. But I remember, I remember that being on like an HBO special, and it was just when they were starting to break. You know, I think Welcome to the Jungle was out, and there, there they were at the fucking Ritz, man. I mean, that was fucking amazing. You know, I know people that went to that show. I remember it was one of them that were like, "Yeah, they were supposed to go on at like," because I think, I think it was that show. They were supposed to go on at like ten o'clock because it was being recorded for, for MTV and, or, or, or HBO, whatever it was. Wasn't that? And they were like, wasn't he, that... he didn't show up till like three in the morning, <laughs> all fucked up. Oh, wait, 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 wait. You know what? I'm remembering it wrong. You're right. Okay. It's not HBO. It was MTV. Yeah. That was showing it. It wasn't HBO. It was MTV. And they were like, and they dude, stick, where the fuck is he? Where is he? Where yeah. is he? And he's like, and they, he'll be here yep, eventually. Yep. <laughs> yep. And they kept talking. They had to run with it. You know, keep talking and talking. And they finally went on. That's right. That was that was MTV. And they were pissed. They, I know, do I know you the remember when they pissed. had? Do you, do you remember when they had the pay-per-view event with the Stones? No. That I don't remember at, at all. Oh, at Atlantic City. One of, I forget what casino, but one of the casinos had, had – it was a Stones show with Guns N' Roses opening up. You know, okay. back then, it was either, Trump, it was either the Trump the Casino Taj, yeah. or, or – I don't or think it was Caesars. Caesars. I, I think either it was Caesars. Caesars. I don't think it was Trump. Those, those are the only two big ones back in the 80s. Yeah, that's true. He had, yeah, I saw some shows at the Trump one. Um, and what happened was I remember paying for this. I don't remember how much it was. Maybe it was like 30 bucks or something, which is a lot of money back, back then. Back then, it was huge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and you got to see Guns N' Roses do a set. 
and then the Stones do a set, and they weren't like the Stones will play for three hours. They weren't doing that. They were playing for like an hour and a half. And, yeah, ninety minutes each. Yeah, yeah. And at one point during the Stone set, Axel comes back out, and they do a duet of "Salt to the Earth," which is one of my favorite Stone songs. Oh shit! Okay, off the Beggar's Banquet album, and it's one that they very, 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 very rarely do. And I, I, I'd like to look for a clip of that because I haven't seen it in years. But it was a damn fucking good fucking show with that man. Definitely when they did that. I don't, so, I don't remember that. that, that so well, yeah. Mind you, I might not have had cable back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you had to have. Not, they, not they, everyone had cable. <laughs> no, that's true. They got pictures of that. They got pictures <laughs> of Axel Rose and uh, Mick Jagger. Singing. Uh, Axel singing with a leather jacket on, like a misfits jacket, like with the bones on it. Oh wow! I think it's like white, black, and white, or white on black on white or white on black. I forget which way it went. But it, but it, I remember him wearing that, and uh, you know, for you know, for a minute there, I was really into that band, you know, for about a year maybe, okay, and then they just, you know, imploded. But for a while, it, what amazed me was that you were hearing these loud guitars on the fucking radio. You know, it was like, wait a minute, this just it didn't sit right. You know what I mean? It was like kind of like when Nirvana came a couple of years. Oh later, my god! I was, I was like. Wow, wait a minute. What the fuck, man? This this stuff is getting played on the radio, you know? It's like Yeah, they, they, it was all over the place. That's the thing that it was that they were they were playing all over the place. And everybody and... liked them too, okay? Uh I, I knew punk that that liked Guns N' Roses even if they didn't want to admit it, you know? Uh people that people that would shit on anything top 40, okay, they even liked it. So, you know, for a while there everybody was really into them. But then they just became assholes, unfortunately. They ruled the world, man. They were like the top of the world. But I think the biggest problem that Guns N' Roses had was, you know what? They were young. They were doing a lot of drugs. And Axel won a complete control. Once you got a lead singer that won complete control, you know what? So you're like, fuck this. When you, when you, you, see the thing. you think you know everything and you don't need the guys around you, uh, you're fucked. And I, I can say that uh, just personally recently, because I, I just recently got back together with an old guitarist friend of mine, and we've started putting some things together. And I said yeah. to him, you know, we've been playing off and on for 20 years. I'm like, and we sell out places anywhere we go. I realized a long time ago, I think he's getting a little older on the truth. He did, gets it now too as well, that we just have that chemistry. When you have the chemistry with someone, you might hate each other, but you, if you if you musically work yeah. well, you got you got to just work with that. Um, I think Axel yeah. to this day, and, and I heard it from people who've worked because I know a guy who played with Axel, uh, a guy Ron Thal, who was in Bumblefoot. He he took when Axel went on the road by himself with uh, Guns N' Roses. He played right. guitar for them with Buckethead, and he's like, "Listen," he goes, he, "He's I think starting to learn to calm the fuck down. That you know the ego isn't going anywhere, and you're tarnishing your legacy." And everyone recently who's seen them tour is like, listen, he came out when he went ACDC, when they tore it down, he did double duties singing ACDC and Guns N' Roses. The old Axel would have never done that. He would like, fuck you, I'm not singing twice. Right. Now he's doing it. So I think hopefully he, he's like, you know what? I was an asshole. I'm not anymore. People change. That's all I can say. Well, you know, I, I, I'll hand it to him then if that's true. You know, it's not too late to redeem yourself. But uh, if they ever get back together... You know, maybe they got one more album, but who knows if that could ever happen. I mean, you think, I mean, you think yeah, about how, how much shit was given to them. I mean, I, I, yeah. I watched a documentary on the fucking, and don't, don't yell at me, 
uh, the, the fucking, what was it? The, um, the New Kids in the Block. And the, the bouncers were saying that the moms were fucking them to get the daughters backstage. The bouncers, not the band. The bouncers were getting laid more oh just to get the daughters backstage. Yeah. So imagine that free, no, not, not the whole Me Too movement, but imagine that free pussy, <laughs> that free everything, free booze, oh free God. drugs. I'd be that one. Wow. It was funny. You can make fun of new kids, but they ruled the world. So at one point, they were the biggest band. They were the backstreet boys. They were huge. They were they were huge. They were they were pretty much the beginning of that whole fucking kind of weird band boy band boys back again. Yeah, yeah. So I don't I don't blame him for being an asshole, but I do blame him for ruining a lot of time they could have had together doing much better music. Yeah. Oh yeah. They could have had at least one more good album, you know. Easily. Easily. Hey, they're they're back together now. Let's see if they can get together. I heard I heard there's I heard there's about four or five songs already together, so we'll see. Is Izzy Stradlin playing with them or no? No, he's pissed. He's yeah. pissed. Has a lawsuit going with them because apparently when the tour came out, he was guaranteed. He came out the first day of the tour and he played yeah. with them. And according to him, again, this is Izzy, um, that he was guaranteed to be on the whole tour. And they were like, "No, nah, man, we just put you on for the day, you know, to put you out there what? to get get you a payday." But again, I, I think he's in and out of rehab constantly. You, you got a billion dollar tour going on. You can't worry about a guy being too fucked up to not play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't want that. Yeah, it's, no, it's, 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 it's not back in the day where that shit's cool. You know, there's, there's now there's investors. There's fucking you know, corporate people involved. Like they don't give a shit. <laughs> They're like, fuck you. Yeah, we got YouTube. We'll find somebody better than you. Right, dude. Think Everybody's think about replaceable. Think about corporate people. There's corporate people everywhere now. Even in wrestling, there's corporate people. It's fucking oh, corporation course. are taking over. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And they want their bottom yeah. line. They don't give a fuck about your creativity. They want the bottom line. That's it. No. That's they why want bands, money. That's why bands don't even get second chances. If the first album doesn't do well, they cut you. Nope. Yeah, that's it. You know, you'll know, like a band like the Stooges, could they have existed today? Hell no. No. They would have made one album, it bombed, and they would have gone into obscurity. You know, Dude, what, look, I mean, look, look at Nirvana. Their first album, Bleach, didn't do shit. It's a great album. Didn't do shit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. That album was canned. Yes. <laughs> they, where they've been then? I mean, you, I mean, I left this one. I don't want to go off topic. But In Bloom has two videos. The first video, which was their first single that came out, wasn't yeah. Split Teen Spirit. It came out, and it sucked. Yeah. And MC wouldn't play it. And then Split Teen Spirit came out, and they're like, oh, shit. Let's re-release it. Play. Let's re-release In Bloom. And they did it, and that became number one. Like people seem to forget that that was the first single on that album. They just never released it. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah I remember that. Songs. That was good. That, that those album was good. Those first two of the Vana album were very good, but they didn't get the credibility or shit because people were just not listening to it. Yo, John, um, the we're gonna be doing a show in a couple of weeks about the Nevermind album. You want to be? Oh on? yes, I'm in. All right, All right. sounds oh. good. All right, so, Rob. So, guys, thank you for another great episode of the Rock Show, the Making of Appetite for Destruction, episode 70. And, guys, remember, have a good one. Be safe and don't get drunk. Get, get lumped up. up. See you soon. Later, bitches. Take care, people.